Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. I applied to five colleges, but Howard was always the goal. I got into all five colleges I applied to, including Howard, into their Honors English program. I was thrilled. My dad was not. everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I am Jessica Hinkin. And today on the podcast, we are returning to the Stoop. This is the second um, uh, episode in which we feature a memorable Stoop story and explore various fascinating questions with the storyteller. Before we get started, we want to thank the Park School of Baltimore, which is a pre-K through grade 12 non-sectarian progressive school. Uh, theoretically located right outside of Baltimore, but uh, right now it's like every school, it's virtual. Okay, Laura, who do we have today? So today we are featuring a story and conversation with Petula Caesar. So this story was originally shared at a show that we did in October of 2018. And the show was called Getting It Wrong, stories about mix-ups, mistakes, and misunderstandings. Um, and so um, in the, what, what we're going to do now is listen to Petula's story from two years ago, which feels like a world away at this point in time. And then we're going to chat with her. For as long as I can remember, I always wanted to attend, it, attend Howard University in Washington, D.C. Howard University is an HBCU, which stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. I wanted to go there be in their honors English program, and become a writer. I applied to five colleges, but Howard was always the goal. I got into all five colleges I applied to, including Howard, into their honors English program. I was thrilled. My dad was not. My dad was born very early 20th century, very light-skinned, straight-haired, white-presenting African-American man. And he learned very early in his life that to be successful and to survive, it was going to be important for the white men in the town he lived in to like him. So he became deferential. He became docile. He became bright, but not too bright, never too threatening. And in behaving that way, along with his white appearance, the white men took a liking to him. He got jobs that paid well. He was able to secure his family financially. So he wanted that for me also. That meant no black things in our house. No black music. No black literature as much as I love to read. He was a painter. He never painted black people and there was no black art in our house. I was always told to make sure I spoke the king's English at all times. He was a little disappointed with the hair. But he kept me in the salon a lot so he kept me bone straight. So when I got into Howard, he started saying things like, are you sure a black university is going to challenge you academically? You know, the world's not really black. The world is really white. And you're going to be in D.C. alone. You're going to be okay. And most importantly, as much grief as black people have given you, which they had because they had teased me all my life, don't you want to finally get away from them? So he talked to me this way all summer 
By the time the third week of August rolled around, I was moving into the dorms at Towson State University, (laughs) my fifth choice school. I hated Towson. It was awful. I didn't want to be there. I immediately started flunking all of my classes. It was bad. I was devastated because I'd never done poorly in school, but there was one bright, shining light at Towson, my roommate, complete opposite of me, blonde, blue-eyed, well-to-do family, grew up in a little town on the Jersey Shore. But we bonded immediately. We had so much in common, loved the same books, the same writers. We liked the wine a whole, whole lot. We listened to the same music. We just got along. We shared clothes, we shared makeup, we were best friends. And she always encouraged me to try to stick it out at school. My boyfriend was also worried that I was so unhappy So he came to visit me one Saturday to try to cheer me up, and my roommate said, why don't we do a double date? So she, the guy she was seeing, my boyfriend and I, went out off campus, had a great time. Boys brought us back to our room. My roommate turned to me once the boys left and said, do your parents mind you dating a black guy? (laughs) Why would they? Well, my parents are pretty liberal, but I think if I brought a black guy home, they'd be pretty upset. Sure they would be. What's that got to do with me? It took a couple of rounds of this for me to realize what was happening. She thought I was white. So I had to stop her. This was awful. So I said, hold up. I am not white. That's why my parents don't mind me dating a black guy. Her eyes got really big. Then she squinted and she looked at me for a long time and she said, Patola, why didn't you tell me? And I said, why did I have to tell you? And she said, I've never met a black person. I mean, look at you. Look at how, listen to how you talk. You listen to Queen and David Bowie, for God's sake. You know so much about wine and, and why would I think you're black? I mean, look at you. And she went over to the bed where I had a couple of articles of her clothing that I'd borrowed and she snatched them off the bed and she went to my desk and there were a couple of makeup items I'd borrowed. She snatched them off the desk and she looked at this bottle of CoverGirl foundation and she said, I can't believe a black girl wears the same color foundation as me. I can't believe you deceived me this way. And she stormed out of the room to tell the other girls in the quad, who were also white girls, that I had lied about being white. I'm devastated. This is my best friend. This is my only friend. Why would, why did she think I was white? Why was she upset that I wasn't? Why did she feel deceived? And then I started to think, had I presented myself in a way subconsciously that so that she would like me or had I done something? But the one thing I was sure about was this wouldn't have happened to me at Howard University. (laughs) So I decided I was going to leave Towson and I went home for Thanksgiving break to tell my dad I could not go back. As fate would have it, my dad took sick that Thanksgiving, and he was in the hospital for quite a while, for months, actually. When he came out and he was on the road to recovery, I told him what had happened to me out at Towson. And my dad looked at me and said, she thought you were white? Really? Well, why did you tell her you weren't? And that's when I realized I really needed to stop listening to my dad. Thank you for your time. All right, that was Petula Caesar's story. And before we get started with the discussion, we want to thank our sponsors for the podcast, Golden West, which is located on the Avenue in Hamden. And they have a vegan Southwestern delicious menu, as uh, well as um, 
outdoor and curbside options, uh, check them out, Golden West Cafe. And we want to thank Baltimore Magazine, which you can find on the newsstand or at baltimoremagazine.com. They do a great job of covering all the events and news and um, good stuff and, and hard stuff in the city. Um, so check out Baltimore Magazine. Okay, so when I listened to that story again, Petula, I was struck by how funny it was. Well, I think like most good stories, there are a lot of layers to it. I think on the, the surface response, which I think is the laughter, and plus I do sort of tell it in kind of an amusing kind of way, or that's what I was going for anyway. So there's definitely some humor in it. But I do think, at least from folks that have talked to me about the story, that it's the kind of thing that you laugh at it initially, but it stays with you. And then later on, you kind of pick it back up and examine it a little more closely. And perhaps it doesn't seem quite as funny or the humor has some other elements to it. Um, is it the kind of laugh that you might laugh when you're uncomfortable about something? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, laughter isn't always just about, you know, being amused by something, you know, laughter kind of can even sort of hide a person's discomfort around a topic or a set of circumstances or whatever. And from talking to folks about the story afterwards, what most people's response was, was that the way I told it was funny and there were surface elements about it that were funny, but after they thought about it a bit more, they weren't entirely sure the laughter was that amused kind of laughter. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, you have that last line that's like, I decided then I shouldn't listen to my father anymore, but like he was telling you how to survive. And when you listen yeah. to it now, it's like he's. Well, he was telling you how he thinks you should survive, right? Yeah. So just yeah. like that's the difference, right? Yeah. He, he was speaking from a very particular set of circumstances, a very particular kind of experience and it was his presumption that I would have the exact same kind of experience so my response to it should be exactly what his response was when he ran into those similar kinds of circumstances. Um, the story now at this stage of my life has a lot of humor in it just because I've had the opportunity to live a decent amount of years and to have had a lot of experiences and a lot of things happen to me. So my perspective on it now is that I see the humor in it, but I see the other things in it too. So yes, it still strikes me as funny in a lot of ways, which is probably why I present it the way that I do. But I do also see the my father's perspective and how at the time it really impacted me in a way that made it difficult for me to handle what happened in the story. Um, certainly if that same thing happened to me now, my response would be completely different. So what would, actually, can we, sorry to interrupt, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I, what would your response be now? Um, well, uh, in these days and times, how I feel about race-related discussion really varies from day to day. Some days I feel very patient and I'm very much in 
teacher instructional mode and I really don't mind having discussions about things related to race and in this case, colorism specifically. Other days I'm like, look, Google it, okay? What's wrong with it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it really kind of depends on what day it is, but I can say every day, if I were in this circumstance today, I would not see it as a reflection of myself or something I had done wrong. I really internalized the experience when it happened. It had something to do with me, my presentation, my actions. I I understand now that how people respond to you at the bare minimum says as much about them as it does yeah. about anything. I get that now. When I was 18 and trying to figure out myself in the world, I didn't understand that at all. I, I just, I'm so curious to know if she, if you have had any, um, if she's attempted to ever reach out to you through social okay. media. Okay. Um, has, have, has she ever attempted to reach out to me? Through, yeah, either no. through, through social media. Like, right, do you, right. yeah. Do you, have you ever come across her Facebook presence or? Um, no, I have not. Now, mind you, this was years ago. Um, she, Before. Um, the last name may be different at this point. I don't, it seems like everyone is on social media, but there are some people who aren't. But she has not reached out to me. I would not feel comfortable reaching out to her about oh, no. a particular thing. No, it's, it's for a, her to reach out. Yes. It's for, yes. For her I, no. and, and, and even, and yes, I, the fact that she hasn't reached out, I, in my head, I believe that for her, I doubt honestly that she remembers this incident. I feel it would be just kind of a vague re recollection of that girl she roomed with in college ever so briefly, don't know what happened to her. I I would be surprised if that incident really registered on her radar in any significant way. I really would. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I think I I I think you're probably right, you know, or or she tells it as like uh, you know, a story of someone not being entirely truthful yes. at best and and deceitful at worst you know um right. and it's just you know the confusion and also i wonder like you were so surprised that she didn't know like you were surprised by her surprise yes. and i guess one i am assuming that one of the functions of getting older is like you might not be surprised any if this happened now it's like you I don't know what do you think um I think I was surprised then because I had never had that experience before although I am very light-skinned to my knowledge no one had ever been under the impression I was white to my knowledge yeah so yeah. having come out of an experience where how I presented didn't cause anyone to identify me incorrectly to then have that experience i just didn't know people it 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 shocked me that there were people who would not be able to ascertain that i was not white regardless of what i looked like or how i behaved or whatever i think it would still shock me now because i guess in my head 
I just can't imagine a person who's just had such a, I can't imagine a person in these days and times living in existence where everyone they see looks exactly like them. Although I guess there are people that do. I just can't imagine it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think I would still be a little bit surprised. I wouldn't be mm -hmm. shocked, but mm -hmm. I, I, I just find it surprising and even a little saddening, I guess, that there are people who live in a world where it doesn't require them to not consider things outside of their own experience. Mm -hmm. Would you say that this experience allowed you to feel um, more comfortable at Howard subsequently? Like, had you not had this experience at Towson, do you think your experience at Howard would have been different in any way? Um, I think I definitely appreciated it more. I kind of after this happened, I really retreated into my family familiar things, black things, because I really needed those things because at the time I felt that something I was doing was leading people to believe something about me that wasn't true. So Oh my God. I just that's such a difficult, uncomfortable position. Like what am I doing? It's causing people to think something about me that isn't true. I have felt that at times in my life, and that is a feeling that will make you want to go crazy, you yeah. know? Yeah, and I definitely did go crazy after a while. So when I came home from Towson, I looked in the mirror. I just examined every fiber of my being and my existence. And I was sort of, for about a year afterwards, I went through this very super Black thing I started wearing an afro and I read a lot of really like militant books and I just went through like I need to be blacker I need to be this can't ever happen to me again and I don't want to assimilate and I just became like hyper hyper militant for a while just kind of overcompensating but that's exhausting yeah. <laughs> I've always yeah. found Everything that requires you not to be yourself is probably going to wear you out at some point. It wore me out pretty quickly, thankfully, so not too many people got to see me being stupid like that. So I, I eventually yeah. kind of mellowed out and settled down, and yeah, thankfully. It seems so understandable, though. It's like, oh, you you know, let me go ahead and lean in the other way so that that, yeah, like you said, so that'll never happen again. But it's still it's still theatrical. It's, it's theatrical in some way, because you're trying to overemphasize these things that are possibly confusing about yourself, which doesn't ultimately, yeah, like you said, it's exhausting. It's a yeah. performance still. Yeah. So eventually I just kind of started settling into a place where I was going to be who I was. And some of the things that I am are definitely related to how I identify racially. And some things about me aren't as connected to that. And that is yeah. perfectly fine. But there definitely was a period where I had to untangle a lot of things. And it was difficult at the time. And you you have children, right? Or you have, yes. you have one kid. Yeah. So have you told this story to them? Yes. I have told the story to my daughter and my son. 
Um, my daughter, like me, is very light-skinned. And so for her, it's an experience. She's had similar experiences. So it's something that kind of really resonates with her and some of the issues she's had in terms of how she, she identifies racially and how other people perceive that. My son really didn't understand it at all. To him, the idea that first, that someone would think I was white. Secondly, that they would be upset about that and feel offended or feel that they had been deceived, he thought was just ridiculous. And he, when I told him the story, he kept asking, well, why, why is she overreacting? She made a mistake. Wow. What's the problem? And uh, that is that is a good question. I have no answers. Is it reassuring to you that he's able to see it from that perspective? Because uh, I mean, that is the most mature, sort of like what humanistic deal. Yeah, like, like yeah, right. I, I do appreciate that he he has a sort of straightforwardness about him that I really do appreciate. He's very good at cutting to the chase. And he is right. I mean, even with all of the weight of the racial parts of the equation, ultimately, she made a presumption based on very limited information that she interpreted incorrectly. And it was that simple. And there was certainly space to, you know, take a different path. But because she was just so, you know, she felt very strongly about her beliefs and her perceptions and anything beyond that had to be a lie, had to be untrue, and therefore I was a liar. And it's funny to me, the fact that she thought that was something that one would lie about really confused me in the moment. I, I, I didn't get that, but to, in, her to her, in her presumption, you know, of course I would lie about something like that because the, the truth was just too ugly to be born. Wow. So there, there was just a lot there that at the time really confused me. But as my son put it, you know, she made a mistake. Why didn't she just, why wasn't she okay well, with she, it? She couldn't because her brain was exploding because you guys were wearing the same shade of highlighter. Yes, she was very, very. Her and foundation. I think, yes, her foundation. I think that of all the things that were happening in that moment, the fact that we wore the same color foundation really was just destroying her world at that time. Just, just that, that we were the same skin color. Yeah. Yeah. Was, she was just horrifying. I think she felt a little violated even that we were the same color. Yeah. So yeah. It's yeah. such a, it's like in my perception, uh, of her, I remember this the night of, she's at once this, and, and it's not unlike how, you know, I don't mean to politicize this, but how I view many people in the far right or in the Republican party, it's like at once they seem like a villain. And on another level, they just seem so ridiculous, like so mockable, so fear-based. And, um, you know, and I, I, uh, yeah, there, I, it's hard to see any redeeming qualities about her, but yet she was someone that you were really close with. So yes, this was this was my lifeline at Towson. I was there, yeah. not under my own steam. It was a place I did not 
want to be. And that's certainly not Towson's fault that I did yeah. not want to be there. Every now I talk to Towson alums and I feel like I need to say that. So no, it wasn't the school's fault necessarily. <laughs> I just, it, I shouldn't have been there. I didn't want to be there. I was having a hard time adjusting. And here was this person, my roommate, yeah. who yeah. saw me and was was willing to give me pep talks and who tried to encourage me to continue my studies when I was really feeling defeated. And even when I think about our time before the incident, I I do remember things about her that I genuinely liked and appreciated. And I certainly, so there were some um, white people at the high school I went to, I went to high school in Baltimore City, but I'd never been super close to them. So this was the first white person that I really had a close relationship with. So there was kind of the weight of that, especially when we, uh, when we butted heads ultimately. Right. And it's, it's a bit, it's like a breakup. It's like a breakup yeah. that you couldn't control. Yeah. It came out of nowhere. And then you, because this is what we all do at that age, but not, you know, not everyone has this added, you, you internalized it. And then, and you, to, that you overcame this and you are such a badass. I mean, this is not, of course, like the, there are harder obstacles, but this has made you, I believe, I think a, a person who it, it enhanced your empathy and your sense of humor and your kindness to yourself. Like once you got on the other side of this, um, but I, you know, it, I would wonder how you, um, and I, I, this might be a hard question, but I would, Mm -hmm. I would think if I were in your shoes, I would be really reticent to trust white women. I, I would feel Um, like, you know, that would be a hard pill to swallow. (laughs) Well, uh, quite honestly, I think, um, most black people are reticent to trust white women. No, this no, I look, we got, uh, I know. But having the personal experience to enhance <laughs> the mythology oh, of white women that Black people get told before they have their personal experiences, having that sort of real time experience kind of supported the oh. information I had been given <laughs> before I met this person. So it did not help your case, no. <laughs> But we're the exception, right? Oh, no, we're not. Jesus, we, have, mean, we all have a lot I'm of work kidding. to do. I'm kidding. Well, I think one of the the most difficult, one of the reasons we're having so much difficulty in any kind of race discussion right now is the, the necessity of understanding a structural, institutionalized set of conditions that make life more challenging for a particular group of people versus whether Jessica's a nice person. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, those conversations, like, I understand why some days you're like, Google it, you know, read a book. I'm not your fucking teacher. You know, I get, I get it. I get it. And, you know, what's for me, what's so rich about this story and, and why it has stayed in my mind and I've returned to it often thinking about it. Um, is that it encompasses 
so much truth about race, like the confusion, the complete um, subjectivity of what is it black, what is it to be black, what is it to be black, white, the absurdity that you know the way that it, it it as a system destroys and intrudes upon personal relationships, you know all these things um, and more, but they are all contained in this like one experience, you know and I love how this story captures that and that you can tease out all of these things yeah. Um, yeah. from it. And they're all there. Um, like you said, the layers um, and all the different emotions that are besides, you know, it is funny. It's absurd. It's stupid. It, it raises all the, no, nobody knows what black is and what white is, you know, States can't decide on that. They never have been able to. There's not a different, you know, it's all, it's at one level very dumb and another level so destructive, you know, it's just, um, anyway, that's, that's what I find about the story that you are able to hold all of that um, and convey all that. And it's brilliant that way. Yeah. And I mean, at the time I was 18 and, you know, again, with the idea that keeping in mind that Black people are not a monolith, I was raised in a very particular way in my Black household before I came to the school. My dad was very much a believer in aspiring to whiteness. Right. So he raised me with the belief that I should want to be all these things that white people are and that it's it's a good thing to achieve these things and for him it was a very sort of mythical kind of 1950s 1960s idea of whiteness you know uh lots of lace and classical music and opera and ballet attending and artworks on the wall type of i don't even think that really exists for most white people honestly but (laughs) my dad's belief and it is what he set me up to be a part of and going to towson was going to support that. So I wasn't raised as a super aware, woke, as they would say, militant Black person. There are some Black people, even my complexion, who would have walked into the situation, had this experience, and let's just say responded a lot differently than I (laughs) Because of how I was raised, I responded the way that I did was to internalize it, take it very personally, to feel very hurt and very unvalued. There are, there were other friends of mine at the time who were 18 in that same set of circumstances, it it would it could have been different. But again, the experiences I brought to it because of how I was raised colored my response when she said I had racially deceived her. What would you say now? Because your father's statement, I you know was definitely, a, it, it was pivotal, I think it, it sounds like in, in your story for you to take a different path, to say like, nope, okay, nope, I'm going to go a different way. What would you say to either of your children if they said that they had this situation happen to them? Man, um, first I'd say again, but after <laughs> that, um, um, my daughter has had some of these situations where she was mistaken for something other than black. Um, 
And honestly, at the time, she did not correct the individual. And when I asked her why, she said it just seemed easier to allow them to make their in incorrect presumptions and to just kind of go along. And she didn't want to rock the boat. Mm. And at the time, I felt like I really had failed as a mother because obviously one of my jobs is to equip my children to face the world successfully. And I had not. Um, so we talked about it a good bit. And I understand that my daughter is not does not like to kick up a fuss. She is still learning as she goes through her 20s that it is absolutely necessary to sometimes. She even asked me, why did I insist on telling my roommate? Why didn't I just go along with it? And I had to explain to her that I, it was dishonest and I wasn't going to be dishonest for, for what purpose? Um, so my daughter now, who was older than when the incident I just mentioned, her response to it would be different now. But when she had a similar experience, when she was about 18, she took a different path. She just allowed the person to believe. They wanted the impression she was Greek. So she allowed them to, uh, to just kind of believe that. Huh. So, um, so tell us, where are you now? What are you doing Okay. Now? Um, since um, I was on the stoop with my story, I actually have published a book, and this story is actually in that book. Um, I published it shortly after the stoop series um, in October. Um, on a professional front, I actually took on a job as the director of community engagement with the Baltimore Rock Opera Society. Um, they've been a part of the Baltimore artistic community for over 10 years, and they've definitely made their mark and had a decent amount of success doing live original rock operas, but they are a very white organization. Yep. And that shouldn't be the case in a place that is not completely white. <laughs> so one of my roles there is to figure out what this organization, the Baltimore Rock Opera Society, can do to be more reflective of the community that it is a part of. Baltimore is a majority Black city. So part of that has meant looking at their programming and trying to be a bit more diverse, inclusive, bring something different to the table in terms of what, um, what they do as far as live entertainment goes. So we're doing a series of online concert series the first one is going to be on July the 1st. They're going to be streamed on the Baltimore Rock Opera Society Facebook page, stream live. And we're going to be talking about the history of rock opera music. And we're going to start by talking about the history of rock and roll. And a lot of very important, impactful Black people were erased from that history. So we're coming out guns blazing, having a concert that's going to celebrate those Black artists who really didn't get the accolades that they should have when they were performing. And from there, we're gonna move on and talk about how rock opera got started and where it's heading in the future. And I am producing the shows and the conversations we're having in those production meetings really are a microcosm of 
a lot of the conversations that are happening about race in the world. So it's really been a good thing for everybody concerned. And it's going to be an amazing show. I encourage everyone to check it out. And it's going to be on the internet, so it'll be there forever. If you can't catch the live stream, you can always find it on the Facebook page for the Baltimore Rock Opera Society or on their website. I love this story because there's so much packed into it and I think about it a lot and there's a lot of questions in here, not a lot of answers and a lot of emotions, a lot of, you know, collision between the personal and the political and the present and the past and all that stuff and I I just love that we're having the chance to talk with you to tease out some of that stuff. And I'm so glad to hear all the great work you're doing now too. It's awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is this has been good. And it's been good to uh, hear both of you during this time when you just don't know how folks are doing sometimes. Yeah. I'm both doing well. <laughs> we're hanging in there, we're trying. That. I'm not gonna say that, but um, we're hanging in. Okay. We, yep, we recognize <laughs> that we are two white women that have a lot of work to do. So that's what we're trying to do in general. But um, yep, we're also just humans who have a lot of work to do. <laughs> so <Yes. laughs> uh, we're all getting through Before it Before we get out of here, we, we want to thank the Wine Source, um, which has been a great sponsor of the Soup Podcast. And you can find them in Hamden. They have all sorts of goodies and fits up drink. And we want to thank Maureen Harvey, who is our producer for the podcast and helps us sound as good as we do. And any ways in which we don't sound good have to do with us and not with Maureen Harvey. <laughs> or the so we take full responsibility for that. Uh, if you want to learn more about us, you can find us at stoopstorytelling.com. And please tune in next week for another story and storyteller when we um, continue the series Return to the Soup. Have a good week. I can't lie, I can't lie All these years on my life